It is a great pleasure to welcome back the author of The Hidden Spring, Mark Soames. Welcome back, sir. Great to be here again. Thank you. I'm absolutely loving our our conversations. I hope our audiences as well. And thank you for dedicating the time to this. I think it's so important to go deep on these topics. So much so we're going to cover the other emotions that we didn't come to in the last episode. So we kind of covered rage, we covered a little bit of fear, we covered a little bit of care. But I thought we should go deeper on the likes of seeking play, and a little bit more into fear as well, because fear is such an important emotion. So I thought we'd start Mark, if you're okay with seeking because for me, seeking is so linked to people who are dopaminergic, those dopamine driven people who are curious, and therefore perhaps are innovators or heads of innovation, people who listen to this show as well. And I have a quote here that I hope might spark up your mind and you can bring us whichever way you like, please go as deep as possible. You say seeking generates exploratory foraging behavior accompanied by a conscious feeling state that may be characterized as expectancy, interest, curiosity, enthusiasm, or optimism sound familiar to the audience. You say think of a dog in an open field, no matter what it its current bodily needs are, foraging propels it to engage positively with the environment, so that it might satisfy them there. Almost everything that we living creatures need is out there. Through foraging, we learn almost accidentally, what things in the world satisfy each of our needs. In this way, we encode their cause and effect relations. This illustrates again how stereotyped instincts lead to individualized learning. I absolutely love that because it spoke to me as an innovative mind or a curious mind. But please take it away, Mark. Thanks very much, Aidan. Yeah, the, so the, the emotions that we spoke about in the previous episode, I think most of them, uh, most of them will be very familiar to people. Uh, things like rage and lust and fear and so on are are are, uh, are, are commonplace uh, terms. Um, the, the the ones you've asked about now, uh, well, I know we're going to go back to fear, but the ones that you asked about the other two, uh, seeking and play, uh, they are not what most people would think of as basic emotional needs, uh, because that's what they are. And so I thought I would start by reminding our audience that this is not some sort of philosophical uh, scheme, um, uh, some sort of ideal um, conceptualization about what the basic emotional needs of human beings are. This is the result of painstaking empirical work. Um, mainly using deep brain stimulation, sort of mapping out what the basic circuits for for human and primate and mammalian emotionality are, and so in a process like that, uh, the scientific um, uh, exploration of the of the brain's emotional circuitry, there there will be surprises. Um, so, if any of uh, if any of our uh, audience think, well, you know, I, I, that. I'm not sure about that. Is that a basic emotion? I, I, I'm I'm sorry. It is. You know, it's uh, we, we've discovered this thing, um, and and along uh, the same lines. When I say we've discovered this thing, um, you know, we're still busy exploring exactly what this thing is. You know, it's um, 
So I don't want to give you the impression that we know everything about it. Uh, and you'll see from what I say that we know a lot about it, but um, you know there are still some loose ends. Uh, so let me pick up uh, on, on what you started with there, Aidan. Um, there is a circuit, actually quite a large circuit at the center of our brains, um, which, which, is, uh, which is mediated by dopamine. Um, dopamine, by the way, is the brain chemical that is stimulated by certain drugs of abuse. So let me just mention those. Uh, cocaine uh, and, and amphetamine, uh, they, they uh, stimulate that circuit ex- 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 really very intensely. So if you've ever, of course, none of you have ever yourselves snorted cocaine. But if you've ever observed anybody who was high on cocaine, you'll immediately know what the circuit does. It sort of makes you all optimistic, enthusiastic, energetic, confident, sexy. It's kind of like, oh, there's going to be a party tonight. I don't know who's going to be there, but I'm going to be there. I'll check out the scene. You know, whatever's going to happen, I want to be part of that kind of hyper um, uh, active, uh, intense interest and, and engagement with the world, with the optimistic expectation that something good is going to happen you know, if I just throw myself into the mix. Um, so that's, and, and we use words. You just read some words that I used to try to describe it. I said curiosity, interest, expectancy, optimism. You know, these are words. Um, they're all trying to, trying to, um, evoke the feeling itself. Uh, what word we should use for that feeling? I'm, I'm not sure, but those words are in the ballpark. Um, Perhaps another way of conveying to to uh, people unfamiliar with with this emotional system uh, as to what it does is to is to describe it in the negative. Um, when seeking is shut down, you have no energy, no enthusiasm, no interest, no positive expectations. Uh, you are pretty hopeless, hopeless in the sense of without hope. Um, so what I'm describing there is depression, uh, and the opposite of depression is mania. Uh, and so this circuit, uh, I mean, literally, uh, you can produce mania by stimulating it, um, and you can produce depression by blocking it, uh, either chemically or, or electrically. And, and you know, this is not um, theoretical. This has been done. Uh, it can be done. So um, the question then is, what is this? What is this circuit for? Um, uh, we have two basic ideas about that. The one, as Aidan just said, is that whatever it is you need in the world, it's out there. You know, so uh, it's a pretty good idea, evolutionarily speaking, uh, to have a drive uh, to go out into the world and explore it um, with an optimistic, enthusiastic uh, expectation and interest. Uh, so, you know, that's literally why we get up in the morning. We get up and we do stuff um, because we have a seeking drive. Uh, and while you're doing that, the technical word for which is foraging, of course, we are not bovine, uh, we're not animals that forage, but it's this engagement with the world, with g- general uh, uh, interest and and, and and enthusiasm and, and curiosity and so on. Um, that by doing that, while doing that, you learn how things work. You, you bump into, you see, oh, well, well, let me use the image that, that you used, Aiden, of the dog in the open field. You know, so it explores. 
uh, and it goes over that little ridge and it finds what's there and it burrows into this hedge and it finds what's there and it you know goes behind that tree and over those rocks and and in the process it learns over there there are things that I can drink over there there are things I can eat there, over there there are things I can play with there there are things I, I should be scared of you know there there are things I can copulate with um and 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 there there's nothing it's boring you know so it's kind of in this way it learns about the world just by foraging because you're engaging with the world and exploring it and seeing what's there because you're interested in the process you will learn um and uh, thereby meet your other needs so you get your energy needs met and your hydration needs met and your sexual needs met and your safety needs met and so on by by a uh, 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 foraging. Uh, then, as you also mentioned in that in that quotation from my book, uh, you learn about cause and effect relationships. You you learn if I go there and do this, then I will be fed. If I go do this and go there, then I will you know uh, uh, be uh, played with and you know or, 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 etc. So you you make to put not too fine a point in it. You make meaning. Uh, uh, of you bestow meaning upon the world, you know. So this causes that. This causes this. There that happens. There this happens. And uh, so it's a kind of meaning-making drive uh, by by default, as it were. I mean, it's all it really is doing is engaging with the world. But in the process, you learn about the world. In fact, one word that's been used to describe it, which is a bit of a mouthful, is it's epistemophilic. Epistemophilic means love of knowledge, you know, uh, or, or desire for knowledge, um, knowledge of the world. Why? Because that's where you meet your needs. That's what's a, a jolly good thing uh, to have. Um, the, the I said there are two things we know about it. That's one of them. So it's an all-purpose um, sort of goad that 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 drives you out into the world, and in the process, you 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 meet your needs and learn how to meet your needs in the world. Uh, the, the second idea that we have about it is that it's a it's a sort of um, actually these two ideas overlap with each other. That it's a sort of a proactive engagement with what is not known. So, in in this way, it's quite uh, it's quite sort of a curious uh, drive, because um, I told you uh, previously about homeostasis that we have this place where we want to be, and then deviations from that motivate us to get back to where. We want to be. In the case of seeking, uh, it's 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 not. Oops, I don't know where I am. I better get back to 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 what I know. It's more of an engagement with what I don't know. So so in this way, it's it's kind of odd. The the this the the resting state or the or the or the set point for seeking is an engagement with uncertainty. In other words, an engagement with what I don't know, with what is therefore interesting. This is what we mean by curiosity. Um, it's a, it's a desire to 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 reduce your uncertainty. Um, so I mean, to put it in a more kind of like everyday terms, why do you read a book? It's because you don't know what's in there. You know, you read it, then you do know what's in there. Second time you read it, it's boring because now you know what's in there. So seeking makes you engage with things that you don't know. Just like that dog doesn't know what's over that ridge, you know, so you don't know what's in that uh, 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 television program, and so you watch it. You learn something new. 
why is that important biologically? It's because what you don't know is dangerous. Um, you know, uncertainty is a very dangerous thing biologically. Uh, predictability is a good thing. So, so seeking, uh, through seeking, we engage with what is unknown and therefore unpredictable. That is to say with novelty. Uh, and in the process, we proactively reduce our uncertainty so that in, so the world, which is a very uncertain and unpredictable place becomes less uncertain and less unpredictable. All of which is good for us biologically. So that's what the seeking uh, s system is. Um, and I, I mentioned in our previous discussion fleetingly that these things are, you know, just like some people have blue eyes and some have brown eyes, you know, so to uh, these, we're not all born with the same uh, uh, size, as it were, of seeking drive um, or any one of the others. Um, and so, you know, you get people like, I suspect you and me, you know, we are seekers. You know, uh, we're just made like that. Uh, and you get other people who are a little bit more kind of lethargic and they like they like what they know and they don't really like to engage with what they don't know. And, you know, so so uh, it really profoundly affects, you know, who you are and, and, and how you live your life, you know, what what kind of disposition you have in relation to these to these uh, different systems. So that's seeking. And by the way, I should mention, I already did say about cocaine and amphetamine. Um, it's a, because it's a craving, uh, system also. It, it, it's, it's very sadly, it's involved in addictions. Um, so, so people, uh, I, I, I'm not going to ask you any questions here, Eden, but people like you and me who are, who have, uh, you know, a rather powerful seeking systems. We are at risk of, of, for addiction greater than greater than the average uh, member of the population. Um, now, uh, I did mention in our previous discussion another system that's important for addiction, and that's that attachment system, which is opioid-driven. So people who are addicted to opiates like morphine and heroin and, and opium itself, and opiates over-the-counter opiates, um, you know, that's tapping into that 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 clinging. Um, a, a bonding sort of system, whereas this one, it's, 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 these are uppers, you know, they kind of motivate you and, and, and arouse you. And people who use those drugs, they have terrible depressive crashes afterwards. Uh, because because of the homeostatic rebound. I might jump in on what you said there, because I think that will speak to our audience in a big way. Many of them are seekers, they're curious, that's why they're listening to us. Those people are still with us w with this deeper dive into a book. And I thought about how you, you obviously keep fit, you know, but but also going to the gym is dopaminergic, like I get a dopamine hit from going to the gym. Yes, I get endorphins afterwards. But I guess I, I get it's a drive for me to go to the gym. It was the same as playing rugby. It was the same as writing. I, I get the hits from different things. And, and that's my substance in a, and in a way that can become addictive as well. And even doing the show, is is a buzz for me. It's it's a dopamine hit. And I'm very aware of that because I can, I can see it's the same pattern, except it's my drug of choice. And, and I also can see how that can be replaceable with another drug of choice if I fell into the wrong crowd, or I fell I, I stumbled upon a drug that I I so happened to like. But I, I just wanted to say that one, and maybe you have some comments on that. The other one was, and we mentioned this before, but I really, really wanted to emphasize this for audience. 
the the greatest gift this show has given me is empathy and and when you listen to experts like you tell us about the brain like this and i i tend to see not only the neurodiversity of everybody but it, but it's like it's like a graphic equalizer of neurochemicals so everybody has a different setting and sometimes you can be really annoyed at a sibling or like for example when your brother got ill he he surely got damaged in his dopaminergic system so you can be like why isn't he the same way why isn't he why doesn't he want to play etc and that can become extremely frustrating for people but when you understand this it gives you some a, a huge amount of empathy well, let me start with that point first i mean in my brother's case which is which is rather typical of that you know what we call closed head injury or diffuse uh, a, a brain injury which is what happens with most head trauma um, there's a shearing of the long axons and the system we're talking about is a long axon system. And so th th these patients uh, become what we call adynamic. In other words, they lose their um, spontaneity and initiative and generativity. Uh, and you know they can do stuff, but they don't have the drive um, and, and initiative. Uh, they don't initiate things. Uh, 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 and of course, that's the opposite of the sort of person you were speaking about earlier, you know, people who are movers and shakers and masters of the universe, people who create stuff. Um, but but let me then link to, um, well, let me also just say in passing, as you sort of said yourself about the chemistries, that we are all of us, all of us, you know, uh, we, we are bodily organisms and, you know, we are, we are therefore like very complicated um, chemical systems. Um, but we are also subjective beings. And so I want to make the point that they are the same thing, you know, that the being of the body is the experiencing of the action uh, of these of these physiological processes. You can manipulate them artificially through drugs, uh, but you can also generate the very same uh, chemical re reactions through what you do. And, you know, so you're, you spoke about going to gym and getting a dopamine hit. That's exactly what's happening. You know, um, it's not it's not a, a, a metaphor. Um, you know, you you by doing something in your life, or by falling in love. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, so I want to make the point that there's no dichotomy here. You know, it's not as if there's biological psychiatry and then there's the sort of lived life of the mind. They're the same thing, and this is what I think is so important that for the future of of, of well, frankly, of humanity, but certainly of medicine, of, you know, my sort of field. Um, I think it's really important that we that we recognize that uh, that a psychological approach to to the human being and a medical approach to the human being converge on exactly the territory we're talking about now. So so um, to, to to come back to what you were saying, uh, and it links with what I said. I said people who 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 use cocaine, like you snort cocaine on a Friday and a Saturday, by Monday you're in a depression. Or if you're a cocaine abuser over an extended period and you then withdraw from it, you go into a really serious depression. And that's because your homeostatic set point has changed. It's, it expects more cocaine or expects more dopamine. So it doesn't produce as much because you're getting it from the outside. Now it stops coming from the outside. And so, you know, there's a, it, it, suddenly it's not getting the amount because it's not, ha hasn't been producing it. And so then it takes a while for your, for your homeostat to readjust. And why I mention that is because I want to make clear that this is a system that has both extremes. 
Um, and uh, it's not just about motivation. Uh, it's it's about mania at the one extreme, and it's about depression at the other extreme. The 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 happy medium is what we have to find in life. If you you can become addicted to uh, all kinds of euphoric activities, like falling in love and gym and you know and 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 meeting exciting people and being famous or you know whatever the case may be, and then if you're not doing that, just like with the dope with the cocaine head. Um, you know, then you get depressed because the only way that you can survive is to be in this kind of hypermanic, excited, uh, uh, endlessly uh, interesting, novel, new experiences, highs, you know. And so it's uh, here again, I'm trying to illustrate the point that what 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 drug abusers do um, by living in an unhealthy way physically, uh, you can do the same thing psychologically. You know, living in an unhealthy way, and it comes down to these very same systems. So, a very you know, uh, I've spoke about some. Uh, I mentioned mania and depression, um, uh, and I mentioned drug addiction. Um, also, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, has everything to do with this system. And so, if I can sound like an old sort of fuddy duddy, let, let me try and sort of uh, uh, try and uh, bring all of this down to one. The seeking system is endlessly optimistic, endlessly engaging with what's novel, uh, and endlessly expecting good things are going to happen. Uh, there's the biblical phrase, seek and ye shall find. You know, I think that's a good sort of like summary of what the seeking system believes. Seek and ye shall find. Now, the truth is, you know, sometimes you seek and you don't find. You know, it's not true that if you seek, you will always find. And so and it's an important a part of emotional maturity is to is to find a happy medium between those two extremes I'm speaking about. So you can't always. What's that Rolling Stone song? You can't always get what you want. You know, you can't always get what you want. And so seeking, you expect I'm going to get what I'm going to get at all, and you can't. You know, in order to have this, you have to forego that. Um, and yeah, you expected to find something and you didn't. And sorry, that's, you know, shit happens. And, uh, so you, you, you have to titrate. What is that other American sitcom? Curb your enthusiasm. You know, it's, it's a bit like that too. You got to curb your enthusiasm. Doesn't mean you slump into the depths of despair. That's not the only alternative, you know. So if you expect that you're going to get everything that you want, you're going to have, you're going to have everything. You're going to be everything. You're going to be disappointed and then you're going to be depressed. You know, so what you need is something you shouldn't be expecting, uh, that, you know, that, 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 uh, you can always get what you want. Uh, and, and that kind of happy medium of accepting, well, you know, you, you don't win them all, but still life's worth living. You know, that's the, the in relation to this system, I, 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 I'm giving you an example of when I say we have to, we have instincts. Well, foraging is an instinct. Uh, for, which which predicts seek and you shall find, and then you've got to learn from experience. Well, okay, uh, you know they're they're better ways of living than they're better predictions uh, than 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 expecting that you're going to win them all. Uh, so, having mentioned win them all, let, let's move to play uh, because um, that's the the other big ticket uh, emotion that most people don't even realize. We human beings. But not only us, in fact, all mammals need to play. It's a need. And, you know, and, and that really surprises people because you can see why lust 
is important biologically, you know, and rage and fear and, and et cetera, attachment bonding. But play, you know, play by definition, it's, it's not even real. It's play play. You know, so how, how can that be important biologically? Uh, and so, again, I don't want to give the impression that we know everything there is to know about play. Uh, but I'll tell you some of the things we've learned about it. First of all, which I've more or less said already, all mammals play. Uh, you know, a good example, again, since you mentioned dogs in open fields, you know, a good example is you go to a park, look at what the dogs do. You know, uh, the, what they do is they play. Uh, and so the kids are also playing, you know, but let's, let's talk about the dogs. Uh, the, the, the one invites the other one to play. And the way that they do it is that they, they put their front legs low on the ground. They put their backsides in the air, jump around a little bit and then run. Um, and that means, do you want to play? Uh, the, the, the one who's been invited, if they accept the invitation, they chase the one who has invited them. Uh, and then they do this rough and tumble thing, um, you know, and they clearly love it. And then they, 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 they turn around and the one who was being chased now becomes the chaser. Uh, and they, they chase each other around and jump on top of each other. And that's what they do. And mice do it, rats do it, cats do it, uh, you know, uh, uh, all, all mammals do it. They're obviously variations depending on what, like, I mean, whales play, dolphins play, elephants play. Obviously, they don't run around doing rough and tumble, but they do the equivalent, um, you know, within, the, within their, their anatomical phenotype. So this thing, we, we study play. Um, I mean, it's remarkable that, you know, rough and tumble play, kids, little mammals do it. Why is the question? You ask a human being, you know, a human kid, what's your favorite thing to do in the world? And they say, play, you know, then you say, why? They say, because it's fun. And then you say, why is it fun? You know, they don't know why it's fun. It's just because it is. Uh, but that's the scientific question. You know, why is it, why is this odd activity such fun? Now, I told you it's their favorite thing to do. Um, but when you study play empirically, uh, the first thing you learn is that most play episodes end in tears. <laughs> and uh, so that's a remarkable fact. Um, and then we studied, uh, 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 when I say we, I mean my colleagues in my field. I mean, not all of this is me or my team, uh, but those of us who study this remarkable thing, um, what we observe is, what we try to understand is, why does it end in tears? In other words, what is it that leads to the end of the fun? And, and what we learned from that uh, was what's called the 60-40 rule. Um, and the, the, again, it's an incredibly robust rule, although we call it 60-40. It's really between 60 or 70 on the one hand and 30 and 40 on the other hand. And this, this ratio refers to the, the fact that in play, one is doing the chasing, the other one is being chased. One is on top, the other one is underneath. And the one who's underneath or who's being chased, it's fun for them too. We call them the submissive playmate. So there's a dominant one and a submissive one. Uh, and they both have fun as long as the one who's dominant doesn't dominate too much. So if you're the chaser or the one who's on top and you want to be so more than 60 or 70% of the time, then for the submissive playmate, it's no longer fun. And then they say, I'm not going to play with you anymore. You're not being fair. you know. And that word fairness 
um, is, is crucially important. So this 60-40 rule is about fairness. It's about turn-taking. It's about reciprocity. So if I can, I don't want to be too abstract, so let me link it to human games. I mean, think of in our culture, by which I mean, you know, sort of Western culture, uh, the the game, common games are cops and robbers, um, or doctor and patient, um, or mommy and baby, or or teacher and pupil. Um, the the in in all of them you see the you see the hierarchy, um, and so the one little girl says you know let's play teacher teacher and 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 the other girl, little girl says okay you know and then the, the the one who's initiated the game says you're the pupil I'm the teacher okay you know okay now you've got to do this now you've got to do that I'm the teacher bossing the pupil around fun for a while but eventually it's like okay when do I get to be the teacher you know I, I, and. Or when do I get to call the shots and, and let's play another game? Let's play mommy baby and you're the baby and I'm the mommy. You know, then it's fun. Um, if you take turns like that. So, um, oh, did I say doctor patient? That's the other one. That's a very common game. And, um, so that's the 60 40 rule. Uh, from studying that, we, we, we realize that play has everything to do with dominance. Uh, it has to do with, with establishing a, a, a hierarchy. Um, and we are, we mammals are a social species, mammals always live in groups. Uh, and I'm sorry to say this, this is not an ideological statement. I'm not saying it should be like this. I'm saying it is like this. Uh, I'm sorry to say mammal groups are hierarchical. Uh, so, uh, there's, you know, somebody's at the top and then there's a pecking order uh, below that. And it's, it's through play that the pecking order is established. So now, if I can just pause for a moment there, think back to your early childhood days on the playing field. You know, when you first went to school and you're a member of a group and you've got to find your place in that group. And it's a serious business. You know, uh, if you're a top dog, that's great. Uh, if you're a nerd, nobody wants to play with you. That's dreadful. It's absolute, it feels dreadful and it's catastrophic, you know, for your, for your life. Uh, and and I say for your life because please note this doesn't stop uh, you know at uh, at at age eight or something you know it, it generalizes but this kind of competitive rivalrous you know who's who's who in the zoo uh, are you in are you out are you up are you down are you of high status or low status high rank low rank things like wealth uh, and property and all of these things you know which are. Uh, which are, uh, uh, you know, you might think not biological. They're the equivalent of what you find in other mammal societies. So let me just pause for a moment and say how the hierarchy works is uh, the, the mammal group uh, uh, controls a territory, uh, and the higher you are in the hierarchy, the greater access you have to the resources of the territory. So, you know, it's, this is in this sense, it's biological. Uh, you know, the, the higher you are in the pecking order, uh, the, 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 be the better things work for you. But because we're a social species, uh, we live in groups. It's also important for us as a species uh, that we have viable groups. We have stable groups. We have groups which are not attacking each other all the time. And so this 60-40 rule, which acknowledges that there's a hierarchy, it actually makes it, um, it, it's a rule. You know, it's like the beginnings of law of social law, of what's tolerable and what's intolerable. It's sort of a setting a boundary. This is going too far. This is acceptable. 
Um, and so through play, we learn what is acceptable, what's not acceptable you know, to others. Uh, and so the 60-40 rule is saying, well, you know, okay, I accept not everyone can be top dog, but, you know, the one who's above me mustn't dominate me more than 60% of the time. I've got to have a turn. I've got to have my say. There's got to be something in it for me too. There, by the way, uh, you know, I know that a, a large part of your audience are people involved in organizations. And, you know, so this is a very important thing for organizational uh, behavior, uh, recognizing that too steep a hierarchy, um, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's, or to put it in, in other terms, bullying, you know, is, is bad. Uh, you know, to, to, to team building where there's, where everybody, you know, knows that they're, they're part of the team and that they've got something to contribute doesn't mean they're captain. Not everyone can be the captain, you know, and this is how this, how, how viable teams, viable groups uh, are established. There's another very important part of play. Um, I, I mentioned these games, uh, doctor, patient, mommy, baby, uh, cops and robbers and so on. In each of those, there are, other emotions involved, but they're involved in in the pretend mode. Um, so, so mother, baby, you know, think of what we said in the previous episode about the so-called panic grief drive and the care drive. These are the attachment drives. In playing mommy, baby, one of you is one of you is the caregiver. One of the you is the one who's being cared for, and so you you're, you're playing literally playing. You know. Um, uh, with, with these with these biological emotions in the as if mode, not real. So the fact that it's not real makes it safe. Like think of cops and robbers. There you've got fear and rage, um, but it's not real. You're not actually locking up your brother. You know, um, it's you're playing uh, in the doctor patient game, which is usually actually sexy. You know, because you're allowed to examine each other's bodies and so on. As long as it's play, it's okay. It's not real. Uh, if it becomes real, that's another way in which the game breaks down. Say if the child is too aggressive, you know, or, or gets too scared, um, or if the if the the doctor game becomes actual sexual abuse, you know, then it's a, it's not it's not it's not play. It's not fun for for both parties. It's and it's no longer safe in the kind of sense of we we we're, we're trying out this thing. Uh, in the within the boundaries, and again, I emphasize boundaries, rules, limits, what's acceptable. So we also think through play that we learn in order to keep the game going, uh, you have to take account of is my playmate having fun? Because if your playmate's not having fun, they're going to say that thing I said earlier. You're not being fair. I'm not playing with you anymore. Bye. So that's the, your fun over too. So you know you've got to you've got to negotiate. You've got to um, judge, you know, how, is this okay for her? Is this okay for him? Uh, is, can I keep the game going this way? Oh, okay, got to give her a turn. All right, your, your turn now, you know, and so on. So all of this is very good. It's pro-social. It's really, when it works, it's marvelous. There's a few things I'd love to signpost just for our audience. One of them was about that hierarchy. So when the social hierarchy becomes too steep, then the people at the bottom rebel, like so, when they feel there's no hope, that's really dangerous. And and it's one of the dangers we see with the wealth gap that's happening. So that's one thing that that came to mind. The other was, just like we said the last day, and just like we just said a few moments ago about dopamine and understanding that that person who it won't get off the couch may be actually 
different from a neurochemical perspective and when you understand that you have empathy I think knowing this about play is like a map so as a parent for example I my, my kids I have two boys and they love to fight with me so by understanding this I know that I a I, I don't I, I can't win all the time and b I can't let them win and and make it fake so we so we like we put on gloves and they hit me and stuff and I'm like oh that was good that was good and they're like oh really really and I'm like yeah yeah <laughs> and sometimes it is and I'm like you know little bit of ego is damaged but it's so important and and I think they've graduated from just fighting each other to then going to compete with the alpha male in the house which is really important for for social growth and then the other thing is my wife I I explain I read her the quote from your book about that most play ends in tears because she's always going to the older brother you're always making him cry and I was going that's okay you got to understand that is built into mammals and they have to fight that way as long as he's not bullying him it's really important and and she was kind of going oh okay here you here he goes with his lessons from the innovation show again but uh so that was the other and then the last thing was just on on you were saying about the sport say for example sport or or if you don't fit in sport i i was always last picked as a kid growing up always like and 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 what I think this is why neurodiversity and understanding neurodiversity is so important. So my version was, I, I tried at that sport, tried at that sport, tried at that sport, probably driven by dopamine, kept trying, and then stumbled into a sport that I didn't suck at. And then I found my place. And I think this is why when people who are more curious, more seekers, more dopaminergic, are put in roles that are boring. Like if you're an innovator and you're put in a role where you're doing administration, of course you're going to feel terrible about it. Of course you're going to feel lost. And by understanding all this stuff that's in this book and and Mark's work is so important. And, and I just wanted to say that because you can kind of, you can see it. You can see the invisible map that's right there in front of us. So let me just pick up on two points, one near the beginning and one near the end of what you just said. Starting with the beginning, you said, you know, if there's too steep a hierarchy, then there's rebellion. Absolutely. And uh, that's why uh, biologically, um, play is is designed to make stable groups, viable groups, uh, where there's not constant friction within the group. Uh, if they obey the 60-40 rule, they won't be. Uh, and that's that's good for the species because then you because if you're a social species, what's good for the What's good for the group is good for all the members of the group because you know you you have to survive as a group. Um, so 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 uh, 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 um, uh, uh, systems which are too uh, uh, authoritarian, uh, where there's not enough uh, reciprocity and mutuality and turn taking and, and and all of that, uh, they become fractious groups and they break up uh, and there's power plays going on all the time. And, you know, I know what we're touching on is also political, you know, in the sense that you could say the whole of human history is just about groups of humans claiming territories, establishing a hierarchy over that territory, you know, and defending it against the others. You know, that's uh, so um, that's what I wanted to say about that. About sport at the end, you spoke about sport. And, uh, of course, to say the obvious, sport is just play. You know, that's what it is. Um, it is. It is. Uh, it's, uh, so play is an enormously important part of the whole of civilization and culture. 
when I say it's it's not real, you know, it's, it's symbolic. Um, it's it's how and you spoke about the family, you know, that how you you and your boys are able to you know uh, 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 get on in terms of their do- dominance challenges and so on because it's play play because it's make believe they're not actually trying to kill you you know and you're not actually trying to castrate them that's it's just a game you know it's it's not you know it's not meaningless it's not unimportant it's bloody important competition is important and who's who is important and you know and all of that but it's important in relation to this emotion called play and so you know we learn you learn how to negotiate all of that stuff but when i say it becomes so so if you're in a family where the father's able to tolerate a little bit of banter and a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, argy bargy from from the kids uh, and you know and 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 also is you know it it works both ways you know that the kids are able to they recognize you know the father's authority symbolically or the mother's authority symbolically without the mother having to actually wallop them you know all of this is about the sim- symbolic uh, nature of play and this is it's through that that it leads into the whole of culture and as i said about sport i mean sport is like play play war it's instead of real war you know so all of this um uh, subject matter uh, is really really important for an understanding um, of society and 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 the law the whole idea of there being rules a game in which there are no rules uh, is is not a game you know it's uh, it, and it's no fun if you're playing a, a, a game and, and there's no and and there's cheating going on and people aren't for it's no fun it's not a game it's uh, it just you know, it all just collapses so you know we generalize from these very simple laws uh, of of neurobiology in relation to the emotions uh, to some some fundamental effects uh, uh, of of life and society we we're running out of time, man. Again, <laughs> again, we thought we thought we had loads of time. Um, just on on that, you were saying like ru- sport. Like I often thought about rugby because a lot of wealthy people own rugby clubs, and I I often thought about rugby clubs as almost like coliseums. Like it was like gladiators. I'll I'll own the and they they just fight and you know they're my play toys. You know the these these players. I often think about it that way. But let's get fear because I I'd love to get in a couple of points on fear. Um, I, and there was so much more I wanted to go on play. I I know there was stuff I learned about play where, for example, that 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 it's important to explore with play and you need to. You need a boundary, though, around play. If you don't have the boundary, it feels fearful or feels like you're uncared for. And maybe we'll use that as a segue into fear, because so you mentioned stuff about fear, where like what jo- Joseph Ledoux said about if the fear is unconscious and you don't know why it's there, it it's nigh on impossible to change it. And maybe that then I'll I'll throw in a few pieces of into the into the recipe pot here and let you uh, bake up an answer was then if if I have post traumatic stress disorder or I I have some type of extreme trauma my amygdala actually gets bigger and if the amygdala is a lens through which I experience the world the world becomes a much more dangerous place I I just wanted to throw those things out together because of times against us um so let me so Joseph Ledoux you mentioned and the amygdala, which is pivotal to play, I mean to fear. Um the, the amygdala is 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 important for fear conditioning. Uh, uh, uh not only for fear conditioning, but the part that you're talking about uh, it has to do with what we call fear conditioning. So that's a kind of learning. 
It's learning what is dangerous and how to respond uh, to dangerous situations. I've said in relation to all of these emotions, uh, we're born with instinctual responses. Uh, and then, you know, you have to learn from experience uh, what else to do and and where and when to apply this response and where and when to, to apply another one. So learning in relation to all of the, I mean, it's, you could say, really, you could say very um, basically, the, the 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 main task of of emotional development is learning how to meet these emotional needs. Um, that's that's sort of like the great task of life is learning how that, that that's you feel good when you meeting your needs. You feel bad in these varieties of ways when, when you don't. So when it comes to fear, um, but let me contrast it to to attachment. Um, Think about, uh, so what is attachment? You have to learn who looks after me, and then you attach to them. Uh, how do you learn who looks after you? It doesn't, somebody feeds you once doesn't mean they're a reliable caregiver. Uh, you know, you need to see who's, who's consistently there for me. Uh, and so attachment bonding, uh, it, it takes place during the first six months of life, at least your first and main attachment, which is to your primary caregiver. Um, the, you can see why it takes months. Uh, once it's established, then you have stranger anxiety and separation anxiety. Before that, you don't have it. Um, now, fear conditioning is the opposite. Um, you, 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 you touch an electric wire uh, once, a live wire, and you get a shock. Um, you don't want to try it again. You know, you, you, you were lucky to survive it the first time. Uh, you, know, you, you, you walk, uh, uh, you climbing a mountain and you know, you, you come too close to the cliff face and you fall down, you know, and you survive the fall. You don't say, okay, let me try that again. You know, you've learned once, you know, to fear heights. You've learned once to fear live electric wires. Um, and so we call that single exposure learning. Um, once something has been automatized like that, so you automatize your caregiving, your attachment over months. Uh, with fear conditioning over a single exposure, then it becomes automatic. Why does it become automatic? It's because, well, that problem solved. You know, now you don't need to think about this anymore. Uh, you've you've learned this is the person who I turn to when I'm in need, and this is this thing is dangerous. It's a snake. I, I, I avoid it. Um, I, I learned that once. I now generalize to all such occasions. Um, you know, it's, so automatization involves generalization. In other words, I'm not evaluating this particular context. I've got a I've got a rule that always applies, and so that's the upside of fear conditioning is that it saves lives. You know, that's uh, and and that's how evolution works. Whatever is going to increase your chances of surviving and reproducing is going to be selected in. When it comes to fear, uh, a single exposure is enough to know this is this is dangerous to life and limb. I avoid that thing. It, it causes me to feel fear. I don't need to think about it. I don't even need to remember where this came from. I have to automatically, quickly, reflexively respond in that way. But now you mentioned PTSD. So, you know, if you have a traumatic experience, like um, somebody tries to shoot you, you, know, uh, you, whenever you hear that bang again, it's going to evoke for your amygdala. This is one of those situations where my life's in danger. Whether the bang is a car backfiring or a door being slammed or whatever, you know, it's, uh, it's, this is what I mean by overgeneralization. So you, your fear response kicks in immediately in response to that stimulus for very good biological reasons. 
but the downside is something like PTSD. You know, then you can't you can't get over. Uh, you become hyper vigilant. You 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 over generalizing. You expecting that every situation is like the original traumatic situation, and the treatment of that has everything to do with you know re with with undoing that that when I said you no longer need to think about it. It's now become automatized. The whole thing is to is to uh, readjust the brain's uh, uh, um, having automatized that response, and there are all sorts of different ways in which in, in, in which that uh, uh, is is done. You know, there are different types of treatment. So um, I, I hope that's what you had in mind. I mean, uh, each one of these emotions, uh, we can talk for a day about each one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd gladly would, man. I'd gladly would. The dopamine going crazy here. So yeah, it's it's always a pleasure. And I know we're running out of time. There was so much more in there. There was epigenetic fear, passed on fear. You were saying, for example, all all a baby rodent has to do is smell one cat hair, and it will. It, it's baked in there for, from years of evolution that be afraid of cats, for example. I can't speak highly enough about the book. It is The Hidden Spring by Mark Soames. It's always a pleasure, Mark. We're, we're going to come back and do more. And I'm th very grateful for you for that time that you're putting into it. I'm grateful for your interest. And uh, because it is such a rich topic, you know, it does need time. And so um, you know, in this day and age where everything has to be fitted into a soundbite, I'm glad that you didn't try and fit me and my book into a soundbite. It's impossible, impossible. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, listen, you're in London. So I'll, I'll leave you go and enjoy the London night lights. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Aiden. Great, great to talk to you and, and to meet you.